Go ahead and stand for the reading of God's Word. We're in John chapter 11. I'll start reading at verse 1. Tonight we'll go through to verse 4. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Lord, as we get into this introduction, into this chapter, and this last earthly miracle of the Lord, I just pray, Father, that you would show us the power that you have over death, but also the power that you have to give life. I pray that you would strengthen us in the knowledge of these things, because these things are reality in all of our lives. And so, Father, just bless us and speak to us tonight. Guide us through your word. Again, we pray that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and be seated. Last week, we looked at signs, wonders, and miracles, and saw their place in the work of ministry in the days of the Lord, but even these things as they happen in our times, even in our lives. We saw how the things that Jesus did always pointed to what he said, that signs and wonders were always accentuating the word of God. I pointed out that, yeah, there's plenty of people that have signs and wonders, but those who are false teachers or false presenters will always be void of of being centered upon God's word. And again, God's word is always going to be the acid test because the true teaching of God's word always lends towards glorifying the Lord. You see a lot of these false teachers who work supposedly signs and wonders, they always point towards who they are. And so what the Lord is doing here is, again, he's proving who he is, or at least John's writings is showing that Jesus Christ not only is the Messiah, but he's the Son of God. We're having this introduction to the truly who the Lord is and the abilities of the Lord. It was the same thing with Israel out of Egypt during Exodus that God did these mighty signs and wonders. Why? Because in chapter 20 of Exodus, he was going to deliver his word to the people. And so he, he exhibited his might and exhibited his power and his deity in these signs and wonders so that mankind would seek after his word. For Israel, it was the parting of the Red Sea. It was the water that was to come out of the rock. It was the manna that was to come down from heaven every single day, with the exception of the Sabbath. And here with the Lord Jesus Christ, it was the mighty work so that we would look. We would look to the cross, but even so much more that we would look daily to his word. In Mark chapter 2, verses 9 through 12, Jesus ministering to this paralytic man and says, What is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Arise and take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sin, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Arise, take up your bed and go, and go to your home. Immediately he rose up, took up the bed, and went into the presence of them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. And so Jesus had forgiven this man of his sins, but then he used this sign and wonder to accentuate his words, accentuate the things that he said. And so the point of Jesus' miracles are 
these are the things that only God can do. And that's what John is pointing out. These things I have written so that you may believe. He's pointing to the deity of Christ through the works of Christ that we would understand the reality of Christ. If we realize that, then we will listen to these things. If we realize these miracles and who he is based upon these miracles, it should always draw us back to a keener awareness of God's word. His works validate his words. As we enter into chapter 11, Jesus again is nearing his crucifixion. And there's still one more necessary sign that needs to be revealed. It's the ultimate revelation of Messiah and what he is able to do as we're going to see the raising of the dead to new life. Although chapter 11 is at a later date than chapter 10, I believe it's still in response to what was asked of Jesus in verse 24 of the previous chapter. It says, Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Well, he's doing better than that. He's plainly showing us that. And so the Jews were saying that there was still insignificant evidence as to who Jesus was. Well, They wanted the evidence that would remove all doubt, and you don't get that. You don't get that. I mean, we got what is necessary, but there's always the necessary space for that element of faith. The just shall live by faith. Even back then, they saw these mighty miracles, but the Lord always left room for faith. Why would he do that? Because you're not going to see Jesus physically, and you're not going to physically see him raise the dead. You're not going to physically see so much, and I mean, just mean to the same capacity that they did back then. You'll still see things, without a doubt. Signs and wonders still go on to a degree, but we have to accept it by faith. Well, they still have to accept it by faith. There was the intensity of the miracles of Jesus' day. Why? Because we're being introduced to who Jesus is, just as surely as Israel was being introduced to God as he was leading them out of Egypt. And there was this huge introduction during this time that we would see that this is a mighty God amongst all of these false gods of the world. This is truly the God who is. Well, out of all the false messiahs that are out there, this is truly the Messiah that has come to save men from his sins. And so... The rest of John's gospel, the rest of John's gospel really is the response to what was asked in chapter 10, verse 24. If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Well, they're going to plainly see. And all who would come to believe in faith, reading the gospel of John, can then plainly see that Jesus truly is the Christ. So in chapter 11, he's setting a standard that is going to flow through to the end of this gospel. And the standard that is being set is that Jesus has power over death. And if he has power over death, the only reason that death exists is because of sin. Well, then we see in chapters 12 through 21 that he can then have power over sin. And so the one who is able to conquer sin, well, it only goes to follow that he would be able to conquer death. Because again, the only reason death exists is because of man's sin. And so if Jesus is able to overcome sin, he would then be able to overcome death. And so you get got an intention getter here in chapter 11. He overcomes death, 
And so that lends towards his ability to overcome sin. John will write in chapter 19, verse 35, And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. John is writing these things so that you may believe in faith and truly who this man is, and in believing through your faith that you would truly be saved from your sins. With this as our premise, it's essential to understand who this last miracle is being directed to because we have quite an extensive cast of characters who are here. Who is the Lord trying to reach and how? Well, the first people that we've been seeing, we've been looking at them since chapter 8, at least they've have a, had a prominent position, are the Jews. Keeping in mind the Jews aren't just the people of Israel. This is the religious community. These are the people who have taken the Word of God, those first five books of the Bible, and they have rendered the Word of God of no effect as they have added to it the traditions of men. They've diluted the Word of God. And from that, they developed this self-righteous attitude to such a degree as Christ is standing right before them, them, they can't see him for who he is. Later on, it would cause the Lord to shed tears. They should have known this day, this day of their visitation. Why? Because the word of God pointed towards him, pointed towards that day. But they have rendered the word of God of no effect. They're self-righteous, seeking their own personal gain. Well, is it directed to them? Well, Jesus just made it perfectly clear in the previous chapter that those who are not his sheep will never believe. They'll never hear his voice. If you do not hear the voice of the Lord, if you don't hear the word of God, you'll never see salvation. Now, there are a few expectations, Nicodemus, or exceptions, I'm sorry, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, and there was probably a few more, but reading ahead, we know generally the Jews, the Jews were hard-hearted and never received Christ as their Savior. Now, you can look at Lazarus, and that would kind of make the the most sense. It's Lazarus. He's the guy who's going to die. He's also the one who's going to be raised from the dead. Matter of fact, even the name Lazarus means he whom God helps. But I really think we're to put ourselves in that position. Notice how the focus is so little. If you've read through this chapter before, and Lazarus is even in the next chapter, chapter 12, the focus is so little on the man. It's very impersonal when it comes to Lazarus. He's a man whom the Lord loves. He's a personal friend of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the brother of Mary and Martha, but an interesting thing, never in any of the Gospels do we hear any words out of his mouth. And again, kind of presenting him in an impersonal manner. This miracle was not done for the sake of giving Lazarus a longer time here on earth, but to show and to display that Jesus Christ is able to bring life from the point of death. In Ephesians, if you, how many people here read the Bible bus? Read, read the one-year Bible through the one-year Bible? Okay. This morning, if you read it. Now, I read it on my iPad, and th- this is just a little disclaimer here. I read it on my iPad, and the iPad took into consideration leap year, and the one-year Bible book doesn't. And so when I say this is the reading of this morning, this was my reading of this morning, for you, it might be, and I don't remember, but it would have been yesterday or tomorrow. 
But nonetheless, Ephesians chapter 2 was my reading this morning as part of the the Bible bus. And in verses 4 through 7 it says, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceedingly riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Back in verse 1 of chapter 2 it says, And you, speaking to the born-again believer, he made alive who were dead in trespasses and in sins. Now, we weren't physically dead, obviously, but we were spiritually dead. We just had this talk with the teachers here before service as I did a devotion. But in um, First Corinthians, uh, not First Corinthians, First Thessalonians, chapter five, uh, verse twenty-three, we are told that the makeup of man is body, soul, and spirit. Our bodies are our, our bodies. Our souls are our personalities. But our spirit is that which communes with God. Before salvation, we were spiritually dead. In the sight of God, we were spiritually dead. But what did He do at the, our, at the point of our salvation? He caused us to become alive. I had absolutely no relationship with God before Christ entered into my life, and now I have an intimate relationship, as we all do who are born-again believers. And so we need to see the reality of these things. The picture was Jesus raising Lazarus back to life, but there's this spiritual lesson that existed there, so that even as Lazarus was dead and Christ raised him back to life just through the calling of his name, the same thing happened to me and the same thing happened to you. And that was a miracle that I continue to point out. When we see somebody saved, we have to realize the extent of that miracle is just as when Christ called Lazarus out of that tomb. And as God is able to make me spiritual alive, one day I'm going to die physically, and he is then even able to call my name and to bring me into eternal life as well. And so what we see here is flowing through to all aspects of our lives. But Lazarus himself is displayed as silent so that we would see the complete work of God. It's not about Lazarus. Lazarus, if you will, is exhibit A. But we also see our lives in that, and that Lazarus got new life. And because of that new life, there was a witness. And because of that witness... Others came to salvation. We'll look at this in a couple of weeks in John 12, verses 10 through 11. But the chief priest plotted to put Lazarus to death also because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. And so are people believing in Christ because of your new life? So we see a lot of rich typology here. But for Lazarus, as far as Lazarus personally that's not the point. And then we have Mary. You know Mary. Mary was the one when Christ came to supper one night. Her sister, Martha, was busy cleaning dishes and preparing food, cleaning up after the food. But Mary was there. She was sitting in the presence of Christ. Whenever we see Mary, Mary is at the place where a believer needs to continuously be. We see her in three different places in the scriptures. In Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42, again, that was that one situation where Martha complained, but Mary was where she needed to be, listening to Christ, sitting at his feet. 
in Matthew chapter 26, verses 6 through 13, she anoints him with oil. She anoints him with oil and wipes his feet with her hair. She's at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in John chapter 11, verse 32, where we're at tonight, it says, Then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, always making that point. She fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Had died. Being at the feet of somebody is always being at the place where you're receiving for the purpose of learning. Here she's not rebuking the Lord Jesus Christ if you had been there, but she's just opening to what's going on. If you've lost somebody dear, if you've gone through a trial that's gripped your heart, one of the things that I know that I've experienced during such a trial, at least such a trial that I've experienced, is that you can be so confused. You can be so confused in what's going on and whatnot, and sometimes it's, it's Lord, why? why? Lord, Lord, show me. Lord, Lord, teach me. Because, again, you've got absolutely nothing else. So she's always found at that place, that place of learning, that place of being instructed. The miracle was not necessarily for her. She believed. Then we have good old Martha. We have Martha, a picture of the skeptic, but the Jew who would come to a belief in who Christ is. We see her, the first place we're introduced to her is once again back in Luke, I'll read it this time, in Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42, it says, Now it happened as they went that he, Jesus, entered a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. So she's very welcoming of Christ. And she had a sister called Mary and also sat at Jesus' feet and heard from his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen the good part which will not be taken away from her. She's somebody, Martha, that the Lord loved. We see that back in John chapter 11 and in verse 5. It says plainly, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and, and Lazarus. She's somebody who came to a right relationship through Jesus Christ and his works. We see in verse 27 that she makes a profession of faith. In verse 27, she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is to come into the world. So we're seeing a progression here. There's signs, there's the word in Martha, and we see belief. And then we see how belief has changed her life and her attitude. We see back again in Luke chapter 10, in verse 40, there was the me. How come I'm working? It was about me and the things that are going on in, in my life. And, and again, back in Luke 10, she can't even serve one person. But then after chapter 11, after we see this profession of belief, Looking over in John chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, it says, Then, this is after chapter 11, then, then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Matthew 26 tells us that there were up to 17 people this time present at this meal. There was the Lord Jesus Christ. There were the 12 apostles. There was Lazarus, this man named Simon. There was Mary, and there was Martha. And here she is, 
See, before it was a problem just serving one or two, Jesus and Mary, or maybe Lazarus was there. But now serving is no longer a problem for her. Why? Because now she has the proper perspective. Not the proper perspective of herself, not the proper perspective of serving, but the proper perspective of the Lord Jesus Christ. I've seen that in the, wor- in the work of ministry. People who serve that get burned out and burned out because they get mad or they get frustrated. Don't they see that I'm over here and, and, and all? But, but they have an improper perspective. See, although our service is to one another, ultimately our service is to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so all that I do, and we'll sing about these things, I'll teach about these things, but we have to have the true knowledge and understanding of these things. True service is to the Lord. You're doing it to the Lord and nobody else. Now, again, the avenue of service is through the people, but I'm not there just serving the people apart from Jesus Christ. Because if you're just serving the people apart from Jesus Christ, you're going to get frustrated. And I've seen that frustration. And that frustration can be such an ugly thing. But if I'm truly understanding that although I serve people, it's the avenue that the Lord prescribed, but ultimately it's Christ who I have my eyes upon, I so look forward to that day to hear those words, well done. And those words may not come for another, I'm 58, will give me 20 more years, minimum, maybe maximum, I don't know, but 20 more years. I'm prophesying up here, I'll be dead at 78. I'll be with the Lord Jesus Christ. Take care of my wife. Um, But it's worth it. It's going to be worth it to hear those words from the Lord. Now, I may never hear the words from man, but that doesn't matter. Although I serve you, ultimately I'm serving Christ. And if that's the priority, then I'll be able to push forward no matter how many years that the Lord has for us. With a right relationship with Jesus Christ, we will serve him in our called capacity and we will do so tirelessly. It'll be difficult at times. You get frustrated at times. Again, we're imperfect people, but with my eyes where they need to be upon Christ, serving will no longer or will not be a burden. In James chapter 1, verse 21, we are told, Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Then in James 2.18, it says, But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, which you can't do, and I will show you my faith by my works. And so it's through our faith in Jesus Christ that our works are acceptable in the sight of God, but also they're acceptable to the point that I can do so with a right heart before the Lord as well. Back to John chapter 11, verse 1. Now a certain man was sick. Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, him him whom you love is sick. The word here, sick, means a deathly illness or a sinking. The idea is Lazarus is going to die. And so there's some things that we need to see here that have been misrepresented in the body of Christ when it comes to sickness, when it comes to death. And it's important to know this because we are all going to personally, in our own lives, experience sickness. And one day, barring that the Lord tarries, everybody here is going to die. That's going to happen. 
It's a natural, and when I say natural, a God-ordained part of our, our lives. wasn't intended at first, but because sin has entered in, it's a reality in our lives. So these are things that we need to examine. So first of all, we need to understand people that the Lord loves, they get sick and they die. You see the health and wealth movement. We've heard of that. Um, there's teachings that are out there that say that if you had enough faith that you would never get sick. Well, reality does not bear that out. And the problem with that is people buy into that and then they get sick or a loved one dies or something and they lose their faith. Why? Because their faith was not planted upon the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. What does scripture tell us? Scripture does tell us again, one day we will get sick and die. But it also tells us that the Lord is there in the midst of that. And we know that death is a passage from this world into the presence of Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says, And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this judgment, that tells me that God has appointed a day, time, and method for my passing. Now, in that, what I see is, is that it's in the hands of God. God, God, God has all of that plan. And if it's of the will of God, in that ugly thing that death can be, doesn't that offer an element of comfort and an element of peace? That, that God has allowed this to happen according to his divine timetable and according to his desires. And if that's the case, then that's going to soothe some of the pain. Now, we're told in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that we do mourn. We just do not mourn as those who have no hope. So there's always going to be the hurt. See here that Jesus is going to cry. But nonetheless, I see the hope that I have in my God. In Psalm 116, verses 12 through 15, it says, What shall I render to the Lord for all of his benefits towards me? I will take up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of all of his people. Then he says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Death can be such an ugly thing and it can be such a seemingly lonely thing, but it's a precious thing in the sight of God. The death of the believer is something valued in the eyes of the Lord. And again, I have to have this proper biblical perspective because it can be so easy to lose faith or to lose hope at the death of a loved one. But here we see that God meets us in the midst of our deaths and the death of a loved one. Secondly, we see the necessity, even though God orchestrates this, even though it's according to the will of God, we still see the need to intercede on behalf of the person who is sick. Notice the visible subject in these verses. There's Mary and Martha, the sisters of the afflicted. There's Lazarus, the one who is afflicted at this point. This point, he's probably died, but you know, when the, when the servants were sent. But nonetheless, there's Lazarus who was sick when, when Mary and Martha sent the servants. And then we have Jesus, the healer, healer. And so you have these three that are present in most situations such as this. The person who is sick, you have those people who are the loved ones, and there is Christ in the equation as well. But then there's the messengers. The messengers, the messengers here are those who are, who are very, they're very much in the background, but very prominent. 
That's how this knowledge comes to the ears of Christ. Now, it's not that Christ is ignorant of our sickness, but really what I need to see here again, it says, Therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. And so these messengers are very transparent here, but it's this that brings the reality of this to the Lord. So again, it's not that the Lord needed to know, because he seems to understand the situation, but it's that... Mary and Martha needed to know that he knows. And I need to know that God knows. And so although the death of a loved one would be planned out by the Lord, or maybe it's my death or a sickness or whatever it might be, and so I enter into prayer and, or interceding on the behalf of that person, doing hospital visitations, we're, we're the ones who Kindred Hospital, which is a hospice calls, and we go over there, and we pray for people, and some of those people are on death's doorstep. But nonetheless, even though maybe that day is the appointed day of the Lord, we continue to pray for those people. Why? Because it's important for, for us, for myself as I go, for the people who ask me to go, to know and understand that Christ knows. And I just have to go on record with that. And that gives me the assurance that, that Christ knows and that God. I, I desire for God to do a work in this person's life or in this person's sickness. And so the pictures, Mary and Martha are doing exactly what they are to be doing for the sick, especially in somebody who is in this particular situation where it doesn't seem like he is going to get better. I mean, when we feel helpless in these situations, frustrated, and you'll feel useless as well, wanting to do something and you can't, we pray. God has given us that. God has given us prayer in this situation. See, again, we, we will mourn, but that mourning drives us to that place of prayer. And it's in the midst of the prayer that we're going to have assurances, and eventually that's where the healing is going to come from, and that's where the peace is going to come from. We have to understand the value that prayer is. Now, we need to understand the value of prayer in everything but how much more so when it comes to this ultimate trial of mankind, this great divide of death. That's why, ladies, as you are studying it this semester, <laughs> your small group, and James, we're told in chapter 5, verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith, so that's three times it's mentioned this, will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And it doesn't mean that that person is going to be healed. But it, what it does is, instead of putting God on your page or according to your desires, it puts you on his page. It opens up the desires of his heart towards you so that you have that assurance of God in the midst. It's been said that if God says something once it's important, twice really important, three times it's the ultimate important, how about if he says something five times like we saw in those sections of Scripture? Well, how much more so do we need instruction in every aspect of life especially at the point of the passing of a loved one. Thirdly, notice here in chapter 11, they don't tell Jesus what to do. We so easily do that. 
as I reread the prayer requests, a lot of times we're given instruction to the Lord. We're given instruction. You know, we need to pray that and start praying down this list. Now, I, I don't want to be legalistic about that, and they do pray specifically, and we need to pray specifically, but I just have to examine the heart in the midst of it. That I'm not here, Lord, my will be done. You see, sometimes it can be a hard thing to say, thy will be done. Because we don't always want that result of the will of God. And so prayer, part of the reason for prayer and all, is to put me on that same page as God that opens me up to the will of God and what God desires to do. And as all they do here is, therefore the sister sent to him, verse 3, saying, Lord, behold, him whom you love, him, I keep saying that, he who you love is sick. They're just giving him the information. Just give Christ the information. And again, he already knows, but really what that does is it gives you the assurity within your heart that he, he knows. How do I pray for the sick? I pray for the sick just simply according to the will of God. John chapter 14, 14, Jesus said, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. That verse is qualified in 1 John five fourteen. Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So I have a confidence that God hears. Praying for somebody that is sick, I have a confidence that God is hearing this prayer and that his will is going to come to pass. I'm not giving him permission for his will. I'm giving myself an assurance of the will of God. Because above all, isn't that what we want in all things, in all situations, in all circumstances, for the will of God, which is perfect, right, just, and righteous, to come to pass? Not the will of myself, not the will of you. See, God already exists in eternity. He knows what's going to happen in the future. I don't have a clue what's going to happen tomorrow. And a lot of my decisions are based upon what's going on today. And I can be ignorant of tomorrow and even do damage into tomorrow through the decisions that I make today. How much more so as I submit myself to the will of God who exists in tomorrow. Remember King David? King David had that son that came from a very bad situation with a relationship with Bathsheba. That child was very sick and God was using that situation and he's used it throughout the years. But there's this child, this child's very sick, and David wasn't doing very well. At least he didn't have that appearance to his servants. He, he, he wasn't bathing himself. He wasn't eating. He was praying, and he was fasting. And I, re, I would imagine David had a love for that child, but I think David saw his part in the things that were going on as well through his sin. It was just all being revealed to him. I mean, I know during hard times it just seems like we can so have a keener awareness of our shortcomings and even our sins before God. And so there's David, and he's praying and fasting to such a degree that his servants are worried about his health too. And then finally the baby dies, and his servants are thinking, he's going to fall apart. Who's going to tell? And they're talking amongst themselves, and David kind of sees it, and he perceives what's going on. And he asks them, I see you talk, what, what happened? And they told him that the child, the child died. And David gets up goes and takes a bath, if you will. He anoints himself with oil, and he starts eating. And they're kind of thinking, what's going on with this? Here, you were fasting and praying while the child was sick, and now, all of a sudden, you're kind of going back to normal. And he said, how did I know? Maybe God was going to be gracious while that child was sick. Maybe he was going to work a healing, but he didn't. The will of God was done. It was accomplished. 
but the one thing, and David, I'm paraphrasing, obviously, the one thing David did know, though, was where that child was at that moment, one day he will be also. As that child is in the presence of God, he understood one day I'm going to be in the presence of God, and then all is going to be well with my soul. Then I'll have an understanding of all things. Then the pain is going to be gone because there's no more pain and there's no more tears. I'm going to be in the presence of Christ, and I'm going to be worshiping Christ. I don't know what magnitude David realized eschatology, but he also knew and understood that he's going to be there with his child. Fourthly, the answer to the question why God allows sickness and death to happen. We see it here in verse 4. The question is is answered. Why does God allow sickness and death? Well, verse 4 says, When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. If there, Now, you just need to think about this. If there was no sickness and there was no death, then what do you need God for? If there's no sickness and there's no death, do you really need God? I mean, the specific answer for sickness and death, I, I don't know why this person and that, I don't know. I, I don't understand all the time. But the general answer is so that Jesus Christ would be glorified. And I've done the funerals where God has been glorified through that death. And I, I see not the desire for it, but I see the value in that life, but I see value in death as well. And as hard as it is, God uses it to glorify himself and it turns into a really beautiful thing. And I've seen it because I do funerals, but I've seen the salvation that has come from that. Now think about that, because this person died, and I was able to speak of their testimony, and that testimony is what follows through even after we're gone, and it touches the heart of somebody to such a degree that that person's life is altered at that point, so now that person has eternity with Christ. And you see that God was glorified through this person's life, but also through their death. And as people have come to that saving knowledge of Jesus Christ by hearing the gospel, I just see that God God just does an amazing thing, yeah, in and through our lives, but also in and through our deaths. And you come to two realizations here that can find peace, that will give us peace even in the point of death for the believer. Sickness, Sickness is not into death. Again, it's that passing. And Peter, I'm sorry, Paul was talking about in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 8, that this tent, this tent is starting to get tears. This tent isn't all what it used to be. But a tent is always meant to be something, I'm sorry, temporary. Even as the tabernacle was something temporary, the tabernacle was always pointing towards the temple, that grand and glorious building. He was using that as an example. We have these tents, very portable, but very temporary. It's all pointing towards that grand structure that we are going to be as we're in the presence of the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And the existence of physical death, it does glorify God in that we have a peace in the midst of it, that peace that surpasses understanding. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Excuse me, as I I read previously, the Bible has said it's appointed for man to die once and then judgment. And people will look back at Lazarus and say, well, what about Lazarus? He died and, and then was brought back and then 
later on died again. Well, Jesus is pointing out, this sickness is not unto death. He's saying, this isn't a permanent thing right now. This is a, a, a life and a death that is going to be used to reveal who Christ is. So that, again, we would understand that Jesus has this power, the power that only God is able to possess, because in turn, Jesus Christ is God. But an interesting thing we see resulting here, the death and new life of Lazarus will eventually result in the Lord's death. Again, you see in chapter 12, not only were they planning on killing Lazarus because of this, also the the Lord Jesus Christ as well. The death and new life of Lazarus will result in the Lord's death, but the Lord's death and new life will result in the raising of us all. And so God's working a plan out through all of this. He's working a plan out through the life and death of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's working a plan out for the life and the death of all who have come before us. He's working a plan out in our lives and in our death and assuming the Lord tarries in those in the future. And the thing about it is, as much as it seems like things are out of control when somebody passes away, God's got his hand upon each and every life so that no life passes away beyond his control. And for us, those who remain, that gives us an assurance of the love of God that he has for all, that nothing is beyond his control. And as far as myself today, as far as my wife, God's in control. I've got a peace about that. I've got four kids that are scattered around in different states and in different areas. I've got a peace about that. I've got seven grandchildren who are beyond my control. Every once in a while, I have anxiety over that. But then I come back into the proper perspective. I've got a peace over that as well. God loves all more than I'm able to love. And God possesses the power to keep us until that day that we are in his presence. Father, once again, we just thank you, Lord, that your, your word meets us at that point of life at that point of new life, but even so much more, at that point of our deaths, at that point of our passing. And so, Father, we just thank you for the great love that you have lavished upon us, that we should be called children of God. I pray, Father, that we would possess that, that we would understand it and, and, and even meditate upon it. I pray, Father, that we would so look forward to that day But as far as this day, Lord, you have given us life here in this earth, and I pray, Father, that we would make the most of it. So, Father, we just thank you for your word that addresses all situations and circumstances. We thank you, Father, that we have received Jesus Christ as our Lord, who displayed himself as the one who has power over life and death. And when the one who has power over life and death is your Lord, you have great assurances. And so, Father, just give us a boldness in your word to, to preach you and to share you, Lord, with all that we come in contact with, with every opportunity we have, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you all stand, please? Okay, Sean made the announcements. I usually go through and write a few announcements down, but we don't have baptism. We already did that. The men's retreat is closed as of now. So we have church Sunday. Just come to church next Sunday. Um, just a couple of things my wife wanted me. She got me, though, before I came up here. Uh, next Thursday, my wife is going to make it available. She's going to get here about 5.30 and make it available for the ladies to come and pray for the men who are going to the retreat. 
So a week from tomorrow, we're leaving on retreat. And so my wife wants to gather together the night before on Thursday for anybody who has a desire. You don't have to have a husband or a child or anybody going, but just to come together and pray over the retreat and the things that the Lord wants to do. And for you who do come to church on Sunday, you're going to be blessed because we're having our choir this Sunday. And so you've heard of the choir intensive that has been going on for the past eight weeks. We're going to be having our choir this Sunday morning at 10 o'clock. God bless you guys.